Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op. This morning, I have the great privilege of having a conversation with my newest best friend, Mr. Bob LaRue. He grew up in the county next to mine, uh, where I grew up in West Virginia. Uh, He grew up as a farmer, uh, where my father worked on the railroad. My grandfather worked in the mines. He was on a dairy farm. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. It's great to, great to visit with you. I'm so so glad to uh, talk to you. You're the 15th president of the National Farmers Union. That's a 118-year-old union. Let's start off by talking about that organization. What is the National Farmers Union, and how did you get involved and become the president? Yeah, no, I uh, appreciate that. So National Farmers Union is the nation's uh, second largest uh, general farm organization. We represent uh, a little over 200,000 farmers all across the country. And uh, we really got our early start in 19, as you pointed out, 1902, you know, looking to work cooperatively and together uh, as farmers uh, against some of the powerful forces out there that were really limiting the ability for farmers to buy supplies for their farms and uh, market their products. And so since the very early days, we've been huge supporters of the cooperative movement. We've been a force behind a lot of the the large co-ops that we have today. Uh, We're originally Farmers Union, and uh, we continue to uh, work on those kind of principles. At this point, we really have three main focuses, and that is education, cooperation, and legislation. So uh, we also work to advance policies that work for farmers and their communities um, up on Capitol Hill, um, as well as supporting cooperatives and making sure that education remains core to everything that we do. Um, uh, A few years ago, after working on Capitol Hill for a long time and uh, was elected uh, national president uh, this, this March, um, I should add that I was elected and had maybe one week uh, in our national office before we all went remote uh, and started dealing with the pandemic. Okay, fantastic. And this education, cooperation, and legislation, that fits right on with what cooperative principles and what cooperative values are all about. So that works uh, like hand in hand. So what did you do on a hill? You said you worked on Capitol Hill, particularly a small-town West Virginia boy. How did you get up on Capitol Hill? <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, I grew up on a dairy farm here in beautiful West Virginia and uh, had an early taste for uh, policy and the ability to make changes in law that actually benefit you know, farmers out there and uh, the, rural, the rural communities uh, like the ones uh, that I grew up in. And I found myself on uh, working for a member of Congress, uh, actually from Minnesota, who uh, was on the Agriculture Committee. 
And uh, I quickly realized that the Agriculture Committee uh, handles everything from our nutrition programs, including what we call SNAP now, to you know, uh, agriculture and farm policy directly. And so I stayed there for many years trying to work on farm bills and other programs that really help not only consumers out there, but also farmers. So, Rob, what kind of education did you get? Did you go into law or did you go into farming? What, what, what's, what's, the, what's the educational background that take you from the dairy farm in rural West Virginia to Washington, D.C.? Yes. So I went to school for agriculture. I uh, went to Virginia Tech in dairy science, uh, still with the idea that I would be coming back uh, to be a dairy farmer. Um, I then uh, ended up in uh, at Penn State, also in agriculture, trying to build that out. And it was actually at Penn State that I began to understand the issues surrounding good public policy and what that means and how we can build more kind of just society on the policy front and ended up going to uh, Washington, D.C., um, again, when I first ended up there, uh, my expectation that I would be there a couple of years and then end up back at the farm. Uh, ultimately, I stayed and uh, you know had most of my career there, but have always remained uh, with a tie to uh, West Virginia, certainly to the farm, and uh, spend a fair amount of my time here uh, now. Um, again, West Virginia, beautiful place to uh, to be from, and uh, obviously to to be right now. So when were you at Penn State? Because there's another intersection in our life, not only being from West Virginia, but I went to Penn State and got a master's in mathematics. When were you there? Uh, that was the early 90s. And I actually have oh, a son okay. up there. You have a son up there now. Well, I was there in the 70s, so I, I got a couple years on you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I like uh, state capital. It's a nice, nice place to be. So you went. You always want to be in farming, but you had this taste for policy, uh, uh, how, to, how to create laws that would help both the farmer and, I assume, all of the U.S., because where farming and food goes, that's where the country goes also. I haven't tried to live without food, but I guess that would be really difficult. So what kinds of things did you work on in the Hill? Where did you Where did you end up doing? Yeah, so uh – Every five years uh, or thereabouts, uh, there's a large, massive bill that comes through Congress called the Farm Bill. And in spite of its name, the vast majority of the money that goes into a Farm Bill is actually geared toward helping those who are food insecure. And that can be everything from SNAP funding to funding to help uh, low-income senior citizens, uh, funding to uh, to help make access to healthy food at farmers markets, all of that um, really trying to, to benefit those who need access to, to good quality and healthy food. But then other pieces of the farm bill also help uh, consumers, and that is making sure that our um, uh, farmers remain uh, tied to the land, that they are um, uh, protected and that they are protecting uh, the resources because that keeps our rural communities strong, and that in turn keeps the food system strong. Uh, we've seen a lot of disruptions this year that has created kind of havoc throughout the entire food chain. And really kind of, I, I think, for a lot of consumers out there, 
who have thought that the food system just is, and there's always going to be a steady supply of food, have come to understand that uh, they they have a vested interest in understanding where the food comes from and making sure that the system is right and, and just for everyone. Right and just for everyone. That's a huge order, and that's what the Farm Bill tries to do, make it right and just for everyone, because there's so many food deserts out there. Oh, no, absolutely. Does that mean that, we, uh, that we've that uh, we reached that point? No, it, it's the continuing fight to get there. Um, any bill that comes out of Capitol Hill, right, is always uh, made with a, a ton of compromises. Uh, but I do believe that there have been uh, there has been progress uh, out there. You know, as long as we have those food deserts and as long as we have uh, too many of our uh, uh, neighbors uh, who are food insecure and hungry, we have more work to do. But we need to make sure that we are doing everything possible uh, to make sure that food access is one of those human rights uh, that uh, that we need to make sure is always there. And that also includes making sure that policies are in favor of uh, farm families um, as opposed to, uh, say, corporations. That's one of the benefits of farmers uh, working together as cooperatives. It's one of the benefits of, of uh, uh, folks coming together for uh, food co-ops. Uh, there are lots of uh, ways that uh, the cooperative movement uh, intersects uh, with those uh, efforts around uh, food sovereignty and uh, food rights. Okay, so we're looking for ways of making farm families work, those smaller farms in rural neighborhoods like West Virginia and uh, a lot of places in the U.S. versus big business. Uh, so, so what has happened in this big business? I, I get there's like monopolies or oligopolies in the farming world where these big corporations come in and sort of monopolize providing the food and setting the prices and, and all of that. How has that happened, and how does Little Farmers work in that? Yeah, so this has been building for a long time. Certainly back uh, at our origins, uh, we had huge monopolies and, and an oligopoly system that uh, really disadvantaged, you know, a lot of the individuals out there. Um, and then we had uh, kind of the trust-busting uh, error where, Banks and railroads, et cetera, were uh, kind of broken up. Uh, there was more regulation. And then uh, starting in the 80s, uh, we saw a shift in kind of the way that we handle our antitrust uh, uh, laws, which are pretty strong and are, are there and intended to kind of prevent those large uh, kind of concentration of power. Um, and so over the last uh, several decades, we've seen greater and greater concentration of corporate power uh, throughout the food sector. Now, this is also true in tech and so forth, but in food sector in particular, there's massive concentration here. Um, if you just look at meat, for example, there are only four companies, four companies that control over 85% of the beef industry. You have uh, four women, four, four companies, companies, four companies, 85 percent of, okay. of the beef industry. You have four companies that control nearly two thirds of the pork industry. Uh, you have similar trends in poultry. When you have that level of concentration and so few players, um, uh, inevitably, 
This drives up um, prices for consumers. It stymies innovation, and it really uh, limits uh, access uh, for farmers out there, puts them at a huge disadvantage. It's not good for our food system. Well, it's not good for our whole system because that means that prices go up that marginalized people, particularly those that don't make very much money, won't have money for food. And I, on and on and on and on. No, no. Rob, thank you. That's a good good start. Uh, we're getting ready to take our first break. Uh, we've talked about farming. And we talked a little bit about co-ops. We talked about the economics of farming, this moving into more and more massive power with fewer and fewer uh, companies, four companies having 85% of the beef in, um, industry. And when we come back, I want to get more into a little bit of your life story and, and how you got into this role as being the, national, the president of the National Farmers Union, particularly since there's only been 15 presidents in 118 years and you on a small dairy farm from West Virginia. How did you get into that role and what is that like for you? We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Your news talk station. Information is power. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. We're providing you information about co-ops right now. We're talking about farming and the whole farming industry. Uh, the idea the National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program to give you information about co-ops such that you can search out a co-op to do business with once you understand them, or you can start your own, create your own job, create your own business, get a group of people together and start your own business, whether that's farming or anything else. And today we're talking to Mr. Rob LaRue. He was elected to National Farmers Union 15th president in a 118th year uh, anniversary, Rob. We've we talked about farming and uh, this whole market, but a little bit more about your background. You you're from a farm in in West Virginia, uh, how, and you grew up on that farm. Tell us about how you got how your family got into farming and how you decided you want to stay into farming. Yeah. So, farming has been in our roots for. For, for many generations. Um, and, you know, I, I might look back to to kind of my strongest influence, uh, you know, in those early years with my dad and some of his early development. So uh, my dad and many of his uh, siblings, there were 10 kids. Uh, they all understood that they were, uh, they should try to get a college education. Uh, they all were living on the farm. Um, and, and working on the farm, but regardless, uh, they, they knew they needed to have an education. And Berea College in Kentucky um, was the option there. Now, Berea has a strong kind of um, history of being one of the earliest um, uh, non-segregated colleges. Uh, it was integrated very early and then was forced by the court to, to segregate, actually. Uh, but, you know, from its start was uh, you know, had this uh, very much uh, effort of trying to have diversity and inclusion um, in, at its early stage. But its main mission, quite frankly, was to serve students of Appalachia uh, because they didn't charge tuition. Um, they wanted to make sure that there was accessible education to um, uh, students, regardless of means, um, in uh, West Virginia uh, and the surrounding states. And so, while he was there, he actually participated in a program called uh, Encampment for Citizenship, 
which was run out of New York um, and gathered students from a huge variety of backgrounds, including farms, uh, but also urban centers, racial diversity. This was in 1950. And uh, that had a strong influence on him. They had classes around cooperative education, the principles, um, as well as how to generally make our society much more equitable and uh, inclusive. And one of the projects that he had to do while up there was he was paired off with another peer, um, a young black woman, uh, and they had to go to a a newly built uh, housing development outside of New York, pose as a couple, and see whether or not they would be able to be shown a house and whether they would be accepted. Hold, hold a minute, hold a minute, Rob. Let me get this straight. Your father, white male, in 1950 in college, so he's 19, 18, 19, 20 years old, paired that with a black female in New York, okay, to say there are a couple, okay, that was like, they didn't get hung up there or something? Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> they, they took, <laughs> okay, keep, I'm sorry, keep going. I got, I got the picture. I got the picture. Keep going. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, uh, there were a, a number of these kind of little experiments that the the organizers of this uh, program, uh, again called Encampment for Citizenship, uh, were trying to you know not only educate uh, uh, the participants of this, uh, but then kind of grow a collective understanding of what the challenges were out there. And so uh, they went. Uh, to the housing development. They were promptly uh, given lots of excuses why they could not be shown a, uh, a house. Um, and then they brought that experience back to the rest of the group and, and shared it collectively there. Uh, now, I might also add that, you know, part of this uh, uh, program also included uh, a visit to one of their strong supporters, um, and that was, uh, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt. And uh, they had a fantastic opportunity to go to the Roosevelt property uh, north of New York. Um, and my dad likes to tell the story. He's at uh, 90 years old now, but he still remembers uh, the day that he showed up there. Wait a minute. Your father's, your father's still alive at 90. You, you're so blessed. You're so blessed. Okay. 90 years old, living on a farm in West Virginia. That clean air, mountain water. All right, 90 years. Go ahead. <laughs> he visited far. He's visiting Roosevelt's. Yeah, so he goes to the Roosevelt house. He has ice or something that he needs to hand off to somebody there. Goes there. Uh, the, the woman uh, at the door um, uh, directs him down the hallway because he needs to ask Mrs. Roosevelt herself where this stuff needs to go. So my you know, young college student dad goes down the hallway, this ice, and there he finds Mrs. Roosevelt in her underwear, uh, getting ready for the event. He's all wow. kinds of uh, uh, turning all kinds wow. of things. She, meanwhile, is completely unaffected, turns around, promptly uh, tells him exactly where he needs to put that stuff, um, uh, engages him a little bit, and then he walks out and, and has a lifetime story uh, for him. But the event in total was really what uh, founded a lot of the principles that he brought back to his own community here in West Virginia. He was a strong uh, proponent of cooperatives, started an early cooperative here uh, around uh, dairy farmers, um, and was sat on cooperative boards uh, throughout his life. Oh, that's an interesting story to be from 
a small community in West Virginia and first even meeting the president or the president's wife, first lady, uh, but then to see her in her underwear. Oh, that's that's an amazing story. I can see why he could tell that for next next 100 years. And I can't get over Baruch College being free tuition. Uh, I went to Bluefield State College right there in Bluefield, the next county over from you, and it, it was $550 a semester when I went to school there. So it was very, very inexpensive historically black college, but Baru. Now, was it, didn't Baru have some kind of religious, didn't it, was it started by some organization, religious organization? So it, it's non-denominational. Uh, Berea College is, is non-denominational. I think it's, um, its motto is something like, you know, God hath made of all people, you know, of one blood, all peoples, right? So it's this kind of Christian, uh, Protestant, uh, but non-denominational kind of foundation uh, that they have. Uh, but, you know, in exchange, I might add, for uh, free tuition there, uh, students uh, all are required to have a job on campus. For my dad, he worked at a, uh, a little tavern that the school had, and uh, other students work in cafeterias or they help support teachers. Uh, but everyone there has a job, and that's in exchange for that work um, and a small stipend that they get for that. Uh, that's basically how they are paying for uh, their tuition. Uh, now, they have a large endowment um, uh, to kind of help with that, right? Uh, but Berea is is really that model, along with the experiences that he had, were brought back to uh, to this community and really instilled in all of uh, my siblings and I, you know, this sense of making sure that we are always giving back to the community and that we are working with our communities wherever they are, uh, you know, for something better. And so, that has driven me through my work on Capitol Hill, uh, through my uh, affiliation with National Farmer Union, and has really, I think, aligned well with where we as an organization are trying to go um, as we face you know, renewed uh, discussions uh, on issues surrounding racial justice, uh, et cetera. How can we as a farm organization you know, recognize our past, uh, where we are now, and where we want to be headed? That's great. I just one more question about your past. How many acre farm do you have? Did you grow up on it? So uh, the the farm as I grew up on it was uh, a little over five hundred acres, which is pretty good size here in in West Virginia, kind of tucked in between the hills. Uh, We're just a little bit under that right now. And at this point, um, I rent the farm out to a a local family here who uh, have had a dairy, uh, but recently uh, transitioned from dairy. Uh, over two sheep, so it's it's fun to see all kinds of uh, the fields all filled with sheep at this point. Okay, okay, five hundred acres sounds like a lot in in West Virginia. I got it. Um, I am so excited about this conversation. You from West Virginia went to Penn State, have a son at Penn State, Baruch College, no no tuition. I worked my way through college with a program that the federal government had at the time, where I'd borrow. $700 at the beginning of every semester. I'd work on campus in a chemistry lab and pay that back through the semester. And that gave me a little bit of money after the 550. And so I ended up with no debt and with a college degree. And that was a federal program that worked. And I wish they still had that program back, which similar to what Baruch College was with your dad. Uh, and it gave you this worldview. It gave your dad a worldview, being from West Virginia to be in the room with Mrs. Roosevelt, let alone in underwear. But Okay, this worldview going around with a black lady 
saying we are a couple to try to get housing. That that was like ter- 1950. They can have some trouble today with that, let alone in 1950. Now the question becomes, and as we take our second break, Rob, is I want to get more into this food deserts and what we can do today, in particular how co-ops can, can help as we come back on. How What about co-ops make it such that farmers – in purchasing and in, in marketing their products would create these co-ops to help the farmers and also help our communities and help people get food. we got a lot to talk about. <laughs> we'll be right back, everybody. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Your program is Everything Cooperative. The National Cooperative Bank has sponsored this program for seven years. Rob, we've been on the air. This October will be seven years. We were only going to do it for one month, the month of October, which is Co-op Month. And there's a lot going on this year in, in October. But NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities by providing innovative financial and related services. And Rob is the newly elected. He's the 15th president of the National Farmers Union. And, Rob, I'm looking at your web page, and it says your vision, National Farmers Union vision, is a world in which farm families and their communities are respected, valued, and enjoy economic prosperity and social justice. So I want that for Farm families, for marginalized communities, matter of fact, for all families, economic prosperity and social justice. And I believe that co-ops is a way of getting that. And what we wanted to talk about now is you talked about that this pandemic has uncovered how food is so important and how this chain of from the farm to the to the table can be disrupted. Uh, this food chain can be disrupted. But it's, uh, the pandemic has also shown how racism has really uh, – it's uncovered racism in America, how it's affected marginalized folks, black, brown, native folks in terms of having food and health and all of that stuff. So I guess the question becomes, Rob, um, what do you see the Farmers Union doing to end racism, to – make sure that there's food on the table? That's a big question. If you can narrow it down as much as you can, what what can you and the Farmers Union doing to help America become more just economically, social? What can, what, what, what can an organization do and how can we help you get that done? Absolutely. So historically, uh, I think Farmers Union has a lot to be proud of uh, in taking up a lot of social justice uh, causes uh, over uh, the last uh, 100 plus years, whether it's supporting the Civil Rights Act um, and, uh, you know, m- most recently, uh, you know, well, I say most recently, there are ongoing issues, but the big Pickford uh, black farmer issue, uh, which was really highlighting um, the kind of systemic racism um, and discrimination that black farmers uh, faced uh, by our own government, right, by U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture. Um, and Can you say that again? What was that? The Pickford, a black farmer case. Oh, Pickford, uh, okay. Was, uh-huh, that was, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, 
putting on full display, you know, one piece of the racism uh, that black farmers have had to face. Um, folks may may know that, you know, we've lost, uh, you know, a tremendous number of black farmers uh, over the years. Uh, they used to represent 100 years ago about 14 percent of farms. Um, now it's less than 5 percent, um, probably closer to 2 percent. Um, and with that has been an enormous loss of not only uh, black owned farmland, but what that means is a huge loss of uh, economic wealth. And that has rippled throughout our society. And whether it's institutional um, discrimination that is documented um, uh, through the courts uh, by uh, the Department of Agriculture uh, in the past, uh, whether it is, um, you know, implicit um, uh, bias that folks, you know, continue to experience, we still have a lot of work to do. First, which should be easy, but is often seen as bold, is acknowledging as a farm organization in a very predominantly white um, uh, group uh, that racism in agriculture and rural America exists. That hold, hold a second. Hold, 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 hold a second, Rob. I'm sorry. I just need you to say that again. Racism <laughs> exists. Racism exists. And, okay. I, you, know, you know, I think it's very telling that, uh, you know, as an organization, we came out with a strong statement um, uh, uh, after the, the murder of George Floyd. Um, and obviously what that represented, not only in that particular instance, but all of the cases uh, similar and just uh, uh, the history that goes with it. Um, and we came out strongly condemning that uh, and calling for the need to reflect and to seek change. And um, I, it was unusual uh, for an ag agriculture and for a farm organization to do that. But let's make that not uncommon, right? Let's not make that such a bold statement. Um, and I think the other thing that where we are at right now as an organization is not only condemning that, but making sure that the policies that we as an organization have, the values that we ascribe to, are not just something on paper, but that we are living them uh, internally and that we are doing everything we can externally to create opportunities, to lift up voices that are, have not been heard um, out there. And through the cooperative movement, that is one piece of that that we continue uh, to focus on uh, to make sure that um, uh, racism in agriculture is addressed. <sighs> I just want to give a shout out to <clears throat> Ralph Page, who was um, in charge of the Federation of Southern Co-ops and now Cornelius Blanding, uh, all of the folks down there. They, they represent 13 southern states, and I've had Monica Raines on the show, too, that, that they said that there were 30 million uh, acres blacks owned in the turn of the century, about the time that uh, your organization got the, uh, started, that blacks owned 30 million acres of land, farmers, for, you said 14% of farms. Now it's down to like two and a half million acres, uh, 2% of farmers. And uh, the Federation of Southern Co-ops was the catalyst that started that suit against the U.S., against the Department of Agriculture, of of Department of Agriculture giving loans to white farmers and denying loans to black farmers. Uh, all of the different support that the Department of Ag would do would not be available for black farmers. 
which is helped to cause black farmers to lose their land, to lose their their economic wealth. Uh, I just real quickly, Rob, that in the U.S. right now, a white family has on average one hundred seventy-one thousand dollars of net worth. They they own one hundred seventy-one thousand dollars more than what they owe. Where a black family is one tenth of that, seventeen thousand dollars of net worth. And if it happens to be a a woman head of household, a black woman head of household, they have a net a net worth of negative six dollars. So when you talk about losing land, losing the business, the family business, the farm, 30 million acres to two and a half million acres, that's huge. And that also goes over into when you talk about, okay, you have uh, different diseases in the black family, different health issues. All of that plays in. I don't have money to go to the, to, to the doctor. I don't have the education. I don't have, all of it plays in, the economics, the wealth. So yeah, it's huge, and I'm glad I'm glad to meet you, and I'm glad to hear about your organization, uh, and what you all are doing, the um, Farmers Union, National Farmers Union, and seeing how how we can work together to sort of overcome this stuff. Are are you working with the Federation at all right now, and in, in overcoming some of these issues? Absolutely, um, uh, we've been a long time. Uh, uh, supporter and partner with uh, the the Federation of Southern Co-ops, uh, just a tremendous organization with a rich history, um, and one that we uh, are looking for ways to even strengthen further. Um, you know our cooperation out there. We we have to work together. I mean, this is um, there are a number of organizations out there, and I think you know, kind of highlighting you know one of those earlier uh, points I made. Whether it's the Federation of Southern Co-ops or whether it's uh, some of the uh, the black farmer organizations that exist out there now, um, it's one thing for a, a national farm organization like ours uh, to talk about these things. But what are we actually doing uh, to bring about that change? And, and so for our perspective, part of it is pushing for policies on Capitol Hill uh, that are inclusive and address all of these uh, issues. Part of it is 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 actually on this issue that you brought up on black land law and the fact that it's not just this past discrimination uh, that the courts recognized uh, that was going through, but the fact that there are ongoing um, uh, issues uh, that are accelerating the loss of black farmland um, uh, around the issue of heirs property and kind of this historic um, uh you know, lack of access to um, uh, legal assistance for wills and other protections, um, and that there have been folks preying upon that, and just by the nature of no wills, uh, that a lot of the um, heirs to this land uh, historically um, may not even be aware that they're there, and so this land continues to be lost. So there are things that can still be done um, in policy to prevent this, to stymie it, um, and that's one thing. But then for new farmers, whether it's in urban centers, uh, at the suburban edge, uh, or in rural America, what can we be doing to help support the next generation of black farmers uh, and brown farmers uh, to make sure that we are uh, filling those gaps uh, and uh, eliminating uh, food deserts? from the cooperative spec, uh, perspective, I think it's also important to understand that as co-op, 
as these democratic organizations, right, one vote um, uh, from each member, um, what are each of those co-ops doing uh, to make sure that while they may espouse values of inclusivity um, and, and openness, you know, are they doing anything proactively to make sure that that's happening? Um, so it's, it's a combination of these things, right? It's education. Uh, it's making sure that we are living this through the co-ops. Um, and it is also making sure that we are changing policy uh, to make sure that equity um, is something that is able to be carried through uh, across all aspects. That's fascinating. Um, we talk about black and brown brothers and sisters. Um, what about Native uh, brothers and sisters in that uh, you look at the Navajo Nation and how they've been affected by COVID? It's, 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 it's heartbreaking. Uh, that they don't have water. Yeah. Are you able to do anything with the, to help uh, is the organization able to do anything to help our, our native brothers and sisters? So it's, it's obviously a big piece of this. And the stories, particularly uh, in response to the pandemic, have just been tragic. And uh, unfortunately, uh, while the Navajo Nation stories uh, are, are getting attention, we know that there are many other places where either the pandemic has hit, you know, much more um, severely, um, and the lack of infrastructure and assistance to be able to help there uh, is 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 limited. So we continue to fight for. In some ways, it's it's making sure that the rural infrastructure is there uh, for things like uh, rural health and so forth. Um, and in a lot of our states where uh, you have uh, uh, either reservations or large populations of uh, of Native Americans. Um, you know, the needs are great and we cannot ignore those. Uh, uh, too often when we talk about uh, infrastructure in rural communities, um, the, uh, what we find is that uh, you get an infusion of cash and it goes to support um, uh, kind of in the middle, those places that have received some help and so they get some more help. But that end of the road, if you will, um, in West Virginia might be up the hollow. You know, making sure that, you know, those ruralist areas, which, you know, have a lot of parallels to urban centers where, you know, the help just doesn't get to. What can we be doing as organizations to be making sure that that assistance and that help and that call for need actually reaches uh, that end of the line? End of the line. Uh, Rob, I want to send you a. There's a group of cooperators that are working on the Postal Service to try to get support to the Postal Service, particularly at the end of the line, that Postal Service and the co-op seem to work hand-in-hand in in that view of how do you get mail to the last mile. And uh, anybody out there can go to usps.coop to sign up for a letter to go to the Senate to, to, to get help for the U.S. Postal Service such that they will stay in existence to do what they're constitutionally mandated to do usps.coop and if you go look at it rob maybe you can send it out to your members also to sign up we'll be right back uh, with our last segment your news talk station information is power this is vernon oaks and mr rob larue is our guest today who's the newly elected president of the National Farmers Union. 
uh, who is from West Virginia and went to Penn State and has a son at Penn State. Uh, you know, we were talking about, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. National Cooperative Business Association <clears throat> is uh, celebrating this, this October, the Co-op Impact Conference, uh, which is the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th of October, the month of October. And, Rob, if you do not know Doug O'Brien, well, first, do you know Doug O'Brien? I do. Doug's a great guy. He's a great guy. He worked at the Department of Ag in the rural area. Um, he is now the executive director of NCBA, and they're having a fantastic virtual conference year this year uh, for the whole week, international piece, um, it, 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 a young folk folks piece of it. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to that conference. I'm going to see if I can spend the whole week with them. Rob, you've talked a lot about this inclusion piece. I want to switch a little bit over to talking about uh, COVID-19 because the U.S. government has given money, but I'm not sure that it's gotten to the right people. What, what's your view on that, and how can, particularly with your experience on the Hill, was that 22 years on the Hill? Um, how, how can we get some policy this next place might get down to the, to the folks that need it the most? Yeah, it's a great question. Certainly the assistance that a lot of farmers have gotten out there has been critically um, important, but it's a lot of resources that at, at times uh, does miss the mark and doesn't hit those uh, with the greatest need. It's also worth noting that, you know, before we came into COVID uh, this year, uh, many farmers were already struggling with several years of really bad prices. Um, and uh, having to farm year after year with losses. Uh, you can't do that for very long, right, without eating away all of your equity. Um, and in fact, you know, bankruptcies were already rising, and COVID is uh, kind of accelerating uh, those farm bankruptcies right now. In fact, our debt levels uh, among farmers out there are at the highest levels since the 80s when we had an enormous uh, farm crisis and lost a, a lot of farms out there. All of these struggles and the loss of, of, of any farm too often signals the consolidation of farms into even larger farms. And what we've seen with some of the policies and the assistance that's gone out there is that it hasn't been directed to small and medium-sized farms. Uh, the largest uh, farms receive uh, enormous amounts of help. Um, and what that does is just continue this trend of concentrating our food production and the entire system, uh, which is not good uh, for uh, healthy communities out there. Right now, what I'm getting it, what I'm, getting, I'm just make sure I'm getting this right. So the government gives out some money. It ends up going to the large farmers. They get the bigger piece of it, so they stay solid and solvent. But the small farmers don't get the money, so they go bankrupt. And then the large companies buy the small companies. They gobble them up. Is that what I heard? That's exactly it. The largest farms out there uh, are the ones that are least at economic risk, right? They are uh, the ones who are typically, you know, have the, the best kind of economic conditions, even if they are struggling, they have the ability to kind of withstand that. And yet they're receiving the bulk of the assistance out there. And um, there have just been uh, too many kind of ideas and notions, even uh, promoted by our, our current Secretary of Agriculture that 
this is all inevitable, right? That this is a natural course of things, and that big farms get bigger and the small farms go out. And yet that's not what is really happening. What is happening is that we have policy in place uh, whereby we are promoting the um, uh, this concentration of power. We are uh, making the largest farms uh, the, the strongest and, and weakening uh, those smaller uh, farms. And if you are looking at also promoting ways to get new and beginning farmers, uh, and with that, new and beginning uh, farmers of color, the economic barriers to entry uh, become even greater if we have a system in place that is focused on the large farm. Okay, so here's what I'm, I'm, I'm saying is differently from what you've said it, but it's what I've come to believe. My hypothesis is um, you said policies in place that helps the larger farmers. So I have it that Citizen United says you can give as much money as you want to a politician. So the people that have money buy the politicians, the politicians get elected, then those politicians create policies to help those people that bought them, the big farmers or the big business. And the small farmers, small business, those that are economically and socially disadvantaged, lose out, lose out, lose out, lose out. Is that kind of like what you said? That's my hypothesis, at least. I think that's a fair statement. And I think that, right, it just highlights, as we weave this into kind of the, uh, the cooperative model, really stresses that need for making sure that folks have an understanding of what cooperatives are, the value of cooperatives, and being able to consolidate uh, and, and gather that power uh, collectively in order to affect uh, change. And so, you know, our board of directors at National Farmers Union, even though cooperatives have been at the core of our uh, organization uh, over its history, um, has really issued a renewed call for stressing the value and the promotion of um, cooperative development um, and really also cooperative management, um, you know, into the future here. It's essential as we struggle with these, uh, at times, kind of overwhelming forces, if you will, of concentration and uh, power in the corporate space. So those large corporations, those large businesses have politicians that create policies for them. They have power in dollars. We, marginalized folks, small farmers, we have power in numbers. That tells me you got to get out and vote. Got to vote early. You got to vote. If you're young, manage the polls, but you've got to vote. That's where we have power. And that's elect those politicians. They call them progressive, but politicians that work for the people, the masses of people. That, to me, is what we've got to do. Please go vote. Look at coop.vote if you want to figure out this National Rural Electric has put together this thing, the coop.vote, and you can see who's running in your area, where your polls are. There's all kinds of different uh, pieces out there to get you out to vote. Are, are you uh, stressing, is the uh, National Farmers Union stressing getting out to vote this year? Absolutely. It's, it's essential to our survival. And um, I, I'm really glad that you were stressing the need to, to, to also send the support for uh, the Postal Service. Uh, because we know that this year in particular, that voting by mail is going to be uh, a powerful force and essential uh, in rural America, as in a lot of communities, 
you know, the average age of folks um, is is high. And um, in a spot uh, where I'm located here in West Virginia, you also get um, uh, folks with a lot of pre-existing conditions and so forth don't want to be voting in person. So they want that option to be safe and to be able to still have their vote heard. So making sure that postal service is strong and making sure that um, uh, the rest of the system in order to, to, to be able to vote uh, is functioning properly. It's, it's absolutely critical. Glad you brought that up. So go to USPS.coop and you can sign a letter, sign up for a letter to the Senate to release the $25 billion that the House has already approved for the Postal Service and go vote. Please go vote. Get everybody you know to go vote, but vote early. Vote by mail, vote uh, early vote, get get out and make sure you vote and and put in people in place that will create the kinds of laws that Rob and the rural, um, the National Farmers Union are put forth and that will help everyday people, particularly marginalized people, we black folk. All right, <laughs> Rob. Rob, we only have a few more minutes left. What would you like to leave people with? What message? Well, well first of all, uh, you know, look, we've had these values for a long time of uh, inclusion, equity, uh, and, you know, fighting for social justice issues. And uh, now we have this renewed call. Uh, particularly uh, on the racial justice side. And so we want to make sure that we are continuing uh, to do a lot of listening, understanding uh, the issues, lifting up those voices of black farmers, those in uh, uh, marginalized communities, uh, uh, to make sure that we have a full understanding. Uh, And we're going to try to make sure that we continue to do this. On the co-op side, for co-op month, uh, we will have an upcoming uh, panel uh, virtual discussion on how black farmers have reclaimed economic power with cooperatives, pulling from, uh, you know, some examples. Uh, we will have a representative from uh, the Federation of Southern Co-ops uh, that you made reference to earlier, as well as a farmer um, and another um, uh, leader in this space that, you know, will be able to share from their experiences so this is an effort that we strongly believe in, and we will continue to be fighting to make sure that we live this uh, through everything that we do. How do they, how do they reach that, that virtual? What, what's your web page, or how do how, how I find that? Absolutely. Uh, folks can follow us on uh, Twitter, Facebook, or our website is nfu.org. NFU.org. Rob, thank you so very much. This has been pleasant. I want to come down and visit you on the farm. Let me know when I can come down. Everybody else out there, please have a wonderful week. Live cooperatively and let's figure out how we collectively can have financial security and social justice. Your news talk station.